As you sit, grab your Bible and open to chapter 11 of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at a couple verses, a couple more verses this week as we make our way through this glorious chapter and this glorious book. I was reading a commentary this week about our, our verses, and I came across this written by George Guthrie, and I, I thought I'd share it with you. He wrote, How would you and I live today if we believed absolutely that God existed and loved us completely and had a destination for us that made all this world pale in comparison to just one square foot of that turf? How would we live if we believed that God cared about our every action, every concern, and wished to reward us magnanimously for our faith in him? How would you and I live in the face of opposition if we believed in God, really believed in God, as if our whole life depended on it? You reply, as I did, I office this week, I do. I believe that absolutely. I believe with all I am and all I have. He then goes on to write, then how would you live differently if you did not believe? Would there be much difference? If all I am and have and do differs little from my unbelieving neighbor, then have I embraced this world and its values and fooled myself by saying that I'm living by faith? That made me stop. In a way, that's the question that Hebrews 11 has been asking all along, isn't it? Are you living by faith? Are you really living by faith? Or am I just fooling myself? Because Hebrews 11 holds up a mirror, doesn't it? That's what Hebrews 11 is doing. It's holding up a mirror to us, to our lives. By listing examples of what living by faith looks like over and over again, in different people, in different times, in different situations, it begs the question, am I living by faith? Am I really living by this faith that is ex- exemplified in these, these men and women throughout the ages? I mean, do I really accept God's terms like Abel? Or am I living by my own terms in my life? Am I walking with God like, like Enoch? Or do I really forge my own path? Do I work hard for the kingdom of God like Noah? Or is all my overtime work really for my kingdom? And then there are the faith questions that, that Abraham's life brings up. 
Do I really obey God when he tells me to do something? Do I really listen and obey? Or is my first reaction to question his guidance? Do I keep my eyes focused forward on my heavenly reward like Abraham did? Or do I find myself glancing over my shoulder longingly? What might have been what I missed out on along the way? What you regret? Do I live like a pilgrim and stranger in this world? Or if I look at my life really, is this my home? Last week we looked at the faith challenges in Moses' life. Am I living by faith and am more fearless than I used to be? Or am I the same person I've always been, allowing fear to guide my life and my decisions? Do I really, willingly re- embrace hard choices and the hard life that following Christ demands, like Moses? Or do I really take the path of least resistance when I'm there? This is the mirror that this chapter continually holds up to us. These are the questions that these examples of living by faith bring up in our own lives. And this morning there are two more questions. Two more incisive questions to be asked. The first is found in verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Okay, here's the first faith question. Am I willing to look like a fool for Christ? Because faith looks foolish to the world. Faith, living by faith, looks foolish to the world. The author here is referring back to Joshua chapter 6. Moses had brought them to the edge of the promised land and has died. And Joshua was given the mantle to lead them into the promised land. And they cross the Jordan and they come to their first faith test. Right after they cross the Jordan. Jericho. There it is. This city that has walls 40 feet thick. This city that is impregnable. And the angel of the Lord, if you remember, appears to Joshua and tells him to go forward and that he will defeat, by faith, Jericho. And the angel gives him some, some pretty strange tactics, military tactics. He says, go and, and for six days take your army and, and just march around it slowly, not saying anything, and blowing the trumpets, have the priests blow the trumpets. To do that once, each day for six days, go back to your camp. And then on the seventh day, come out and march silently around Jericho six times while blowing trumpets. And then on the seventh circumference around, when there's a long trumpet blow, at the end of that, just shout. That's how you're going to storm the beach of Iwo Jima. 
How would you react to that? Better yet, how would, it, how would a Jew in the army at that time react to that type of military strategy? Honestly. It's foolish. It's kind of idiocy. You're acting us to look like idiots. That's what the Lord wanted them to What did the Lord want them to use as their weapon to defeat Jericho? A trumpet. What did the Lord want them to do? Because, you know, ask me to do something, Lord. That's our natural reaction, right? Just ask me to do something. Don't do anything. Just walk. Just be silent. And consider what the Canaanites were thinking inside Jericho. And they're, they're on the walls just looking at these, this silliness of walking around in silence playing music. Think of how silly that looked to them. How foolish. But that's what living by faith requires. It really does, brothers and sisters. Being willing to live by faith means many times looking like a fool. In the early 80s, there was a very wealthy Swiss family that gained a little notoriety because they took fighting as a couple to the next level. It all began when the husband canceled their vacation without telling the wife. The wife expressed her disappointment by pouring club soda into his fish tank that had all his precious tropical fish, and they died. A long argument ensued. Afterward, he grabbed a selection of his wife's diamond jewelry and threw it in the garbage disposal and turned it on. She proceeded to fling his stereo equipment out the window into the pool. He retaliated by kicking a hole in her quarter of a million dollar print of a Picasso painting. She planned to sink his 38-foot yacht when the daughter finally intervened. She called the police, and the police said this, we can't do anything. It isn't illegal, they said, to act like a fool. (laughs) Now, God will never ask us to do stuff like that. But he does ask us to do things that look kind of foolish like that. He will ask us to do things that the world will look at and go, Blake is a fool. He's going to ask us to do things that make you ask the question, am I willing to look like a fool for Christ? Most people approach foolishness in one of two ways. The first is to avoid any scenario, any situation, at all costs that make us look foolish, right? We all have bumped up against those situations and we go, I'm not going anywhere near that, right? We quietly temper any behavior or social position, or speech that would put us on display as foolish, don't we? The second way people approach foolishness, and and this is especially uh, rife in our environment today, this is a way people approach foolishness today, is to exploit it to an extreme degree. 
My son Finnegan and I have taken to watching these, these epic fails on YouTube where, the, where people actually upload videos of themselves looking foolish, doing foolish things. We live in that age of YouTube, reality television, and daytime talk shows where people actually rise to stardom by putting their foolishness on displays for ratings and likes and subscribers, right? But as Christians, we're called to approach foolishness in actually a third way. To accept it as a way of life as you follow Christ. To accept it as a way of life as you follow Christ. Think of Gideon. He had tens of thousands of, of, of army officers ready to go to battle with the Midianites. And, and God said, nope. And he whittled it down to 300. And in the weapons he gave him, Torches. Foolish. Think of Jeremiah. God commanded him to walk around Jerusalem with, a, with an iron yoke around his shoulders to physically show the people of Jerusalem that they would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Walking around like that for days. Foolish. I mean, Ezekiel, there are so many examples of this in his life. God bless that man. That he did. But here's just one in chapter 4. God commanded him to, to cook his meals for over a year over human, burning human excrement. As a sign to the people how they will eat unclean foods when they go into captivity. Day after day after day of looking foolish. Think of Hosea. God commands him to marry a prostitute. When she's unfaithful, God commands him to go and buy her back and pledge his loyalty to her. That's foolish. You know, we have that saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Think of John the Baptist. He was commanded by God to live that Nazarite lifestyle out right outside of Jerusalem, wearing, wearing camel's hair, and eating honey and locusts. And think of the message he was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The axe is at the foot of the tree. Really popular. Really crazy guy. Really foolish looking. Think of Paul. Here he was. He had a great road ahead of him as a Pharisee. Easy, comfortable, respected. And God calls him no. You're going to be homeless. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be harangued. You're going to be hated. That's your life. He even writes, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. We're talking here about a, a victorious army procession when they would come back and they would bring the spoils down the main street here, all the, all the gold and silver and things they brought back. And at the end, they would bring the prisoners and he writes, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle of the whole universe to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ. He names it right there. All these men and were not prophets and apostles in spite of their foolishness. 
Rather, their foolish lives were proof that they were living by faith. Did you catch that? Their foolish lives, they they weren't in spite of their foolishness. It was because they were foolish. It proves that they were living by faith. Stephen Beale wrote, there's an incarnational logic to their actions. Don't you love that? There's an incarnational logic to their actions. These men of God were not just speaking of the word. They lived it out in their lives, through their actions, through their choice of clothing, even their very bodies. They were thus witnesses to how totally transforming and disruptive the word can be when we let it consume our whole lives by living by faith. If he called these people throughout the ages, throughout scripture, again and again, to live by faith and look foolish, do we really think that we're immune at all? Do we really think that all of a sudden God is not going to require that of his church? That's craziness. Of course he is. We're called to live that same way. We're called to allow the word of God to be disruptive to our lives. To be disruptive to our lives. No matter how it makes us look. And so we apply the question to ourselves again. Are you willing to look like a fool for Christ? Are you willing to look like a fool for Christ? That's what living by faith looks like. That's the evidence that you are living by faith. That from time to time in your life, you look like a fool. Is that something that is at all that you can relate to, that you can point to in your life, in the last week, in the last month, in the last year, that you go, yep, I was living by faith there. Because I didn't look too good to the outside world. There should be things in your life like that. You should be able to think back and go, yep, right there. Yeah, right there. Oh, and yeah, that too. With your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your island community. So are you willing to absorb criticism even when unfounded? That looks foolish, doesn't it? I'm just going to absorb this. This is what it means when he says to turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus is meaning there. Absorb the criticism. The unfounded criticism. And don't defend yourself. Don't defend your reputation. Don't shift the blame to somebody else. Don't shake your head and then go slander the person behind their back. We're called to look by fools and actually be silent. Are you willing to seek ways to serve and be lesser than other people? To put yourself under somebody or something. Even though they lord it over you. Doesn't get you off the hook. Even if it is never acknowledged by that person that you're serving them. That you're loving them. That you're doing things for them. They never acknowledge, keep doing it. 
even if you're never thanked, keep doing it. That's what it means to live by faith. Are you willing to look foolish and pursue sexual purity? Singles, high schoolers. Newfound polls, new poll out just said that almost 95, 95% of Americans do not wait until their wedding night to have sex. 95%. In the world's eyes, waiting is foolish. I mean, the reasons they give is everybody is doing it. Sex is a natural physical urge, just like hunger and thirst. You, you should satisfy it. How will you know if you're, if you're sexually compatible with this person unless you know beforehand? What about if you never get married? You'll never experience it. That's what the world is going to say and many other things. Because it's so foolish to wait. Live by faith and look foolish. Are you willing to use the foolish weapons that God gives us? Remember Jericho? They gave him trumpets, Gideon, torches. What does God give us? The word and prayer. And that looks foolish to the world. Are you willing to look like a fool and when something seismic is happening in your life, the first thing you do is drop to your knees and pray and stay there. Even though it looks like you're talking to the ceiling, to the outside world. Are you willing to look like a fool for Christ? Perhaps the most obvious way we look like fools for Christ is when we share Christ, right? is when somebody actually asks you in various ways, shapes, and forms, Blake, why are you different? Blake, why do you believe? Blake, what, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? Whatever they're asking, it sounds foolish, our answer. Have you ever thought about it? Well, it means that, that God, that's the first foolish thing for many people, there's a God, that God actually became man. That's foolish. Well, then he lived this perfectly sinless life. He didn't, he didn't sin in deed. Okay, I can get past that one. In, in anything he said, okay, much harder, but okay. Not even in thought. Okay, that's foolish. And then, by the way, this, this Jesus allowed him at the end of this perfect life to be declared guilty. He stood silent. He didn't defend himself. Very foolish. And that silence led to Jesus being crucified on a cross, dying a very painful death, taking the wrath of God on him, the penalty of sin on him, and, and by the way, if he's substituting himself for you. That's foolish. What do you mean he's substituting himself for me? Oh, and, and to top it all off, he died. And, and three days later, he actually rose from the dead and he lives forever. Supremely foolish. Everything that the gospel is, is foolishness to man's logical brain. And, and here's, the, here's the cherry. 
if you believe that foolishness, if you trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, substituting himself for you, taking your penalty upon himself, you'll live. You know what Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were very much like the world we live in? He wrote that this gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Henry Ward Beecher, the famous New England minister, entered the pulpit one Sunday morning and awaited him was an unmarked envelope and he opened it and found a single sheet of paper on which was written a single word, fool. Are you willing to be given envelopes like that throughout your whole life? Are you willing to live like a fool for Christ? That's verse 30. But the second question we come to this morning is asked in verse 31. And perhaps this is even a more challenging question. Because it's a very self-indicting question. Look with me at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish when those, with those who were disobedient. Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The question that this verse asks is, am I willing to really believe that God saves egregious sinners like me? Do I really believe that God saves egregious sinners like me? Because what this verse is pointing to is that faith saves sinners. The narrative of Rahab can be found in Joshua chapter 2. That's what the author of Hebrews is referring back to. And if you remember there, Joshua had sent two spies into Jericho. And they stayed with this Rahab, who was a prostitute. And when the king found out they were there, he demanded that Rahab bring them out. So the king knew they were there. And instead, what she did is she hid them, if you remember, up in the rafters, if you will. And when the king's men came, she lied to them and said, they've already gone. When they left, Rahab told the spies how all the people in Jericho, when they heard about the Israelites, when they heard about them crossing the Red Sea, okay, so that was 40 years ago, so this, this had been building for 40 years, when they heard about them crossing the Red Sea, and when they heard about them defeating the Amorites, which were just over the border, when they heard of it, our hearts melted, she said, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. What an amazing statement of faith. And on the basis of that statement of faith, she asked the spies to guarantee when they did conquer Jericho, another faith, to guarantee their safety, 
she and her family's safety. And they would spare them both if they, they had to, if you remember, put a, a red rope or, or, or cord out their window so they could identify where this Rahab and her family were. And they would be saved from death. Rahab conf- confessed a very simple statement of faith. And that faith caused her to act by hiding the spies. That's what James is pointing to when he writes in the same way. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? He's pointing to the action that her faith spurred on. The faith that led to her action saved her from certain death. That's the point James is making. It's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. That their simple faith in their God saved her. Now Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 that we all know so well says, For it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So faith... In Jesus Christ, saves. But it doesn't save good people. It saves sinners. Let me say that again. God doesn't save, through faith, good people. He saves people that know they need saving. I think this is very interesting that both times in the New Testament where Rahab is mentioned, it also says Rahab the prostitute both times. Rahab the prostitute. Why not just Rahab? It mentions that she was a prostitute intentionally. God inspired that moniker in James and here in Hebrews to highlight her sinfulness. It's the only reason they would be there. If we think about it a moment, Rahab had many strikes against her. She was an Amorite. These were people that that hated the people of God. She was a citizen of Jericho, which is a condemned city. But she was also an egregious sinner. She was a prostitute. She was a whore. Yet she was given the faith to believe in Yahweh and act on that faith by hiding the spies. And even though she was an egregious sinner, coming from a people opposed to God, she was saved. You see, we all have to remember, God saves egregious sinners. God doesn't save kind of sinners. God doesn't save, I sin, but I do a lot of good stuff. God doesn't save those people. He saves people that go, I am a sinner. That's the only kind he saves. And the question again we must ask, are we willing to believe that God will save an egregious sinner like me? If you know Charles Colson, you know that he came to faith after a political career. And he did prison ministry for many years. In his book, Being the Body, he writes about speaking at a businessman's luncheon Bible study one day. And somewhere along in his talk, he talked about sinners and he thinks, he says, he thinks he even used the words total depravity. 
He noticed when he said those words that that men in the audience kind of shifted a little bit and, and were a little uncomfortable. So when it came to time for questions and answers, the first question was about sin. And the first question was asked by an older gentleman in a, in a sharp pinstripe suit, he says. And the man said, do you really believe we are sinners? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone fellows. Intelligent people don't go for that back preacher kind of stuff. To which Charles Colson said, yes, sir, I believe we are desperately sinful. What's inside each of us is actually pretty ugly. In fact, we deserve hell and we would get it, but for the sacrifice of Christ. At that point, Colson writes, the man who had invited him to the luncheon Bible study said, well, I don't know about that. I'm a good person, and I have been all my life. I mean, I go to church, and I get exhausted, actually, spending all my time doing these good works. Colson said, Sir, if you believe that, I hate to say this, for you certainly won't invite me back. You are, for all your good works, further away from the kingdom of God than the people I work with in prison are who know they're sinners. The room was completely silent. But Colson actually pressed a little further. And he said this, In fact, gentlemen, if you think about it, we're really more close to Adolf Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. You see, we all have to get to the point where we don't look down on Rahab as a prostitute. We have to get to the point in each one of our hearts where we're staring at her eye to eye, where we're on level ground with Rahab the prostitute. It's only then that the gospel actually becomes real to you. That what Jesus did actually means something. If you think you're kind of good, Jesus will be kind of a good thing to have. If you think you're desperately evil and that you're a sinner and that you can't do this by yourself, you can't forgive yourself enough, you can't do enough good philanthropic deeds to overcome this, then Jesus becomes what this table represents, your Savior, your propitiation, your atonement, your forgiver. Because that's what this table represents. That's why we do this every week. Because it reminds us of who we are and what Jesus did And it gives us that exhale. So as we go into communion today, I encourage you to think of the ways that you look at Rahab eye to eye. Think of the ways that you are standing on level ground with Rahab the whore. And that will elevate what Jesus did for you in your heart, in your mind. You'll fall in love with him because of what he did on your behalf.
Let's take a few minutes to prepare for the Lord's table in that way.